Talk 1110-993-WBT. Hour number three of the show. Pete Callender here. Thanks a lot for hanging out. I do appreciate it. Working the entire show today without notes. I mean, except for the ones I'm making. Yeah. Did, did all the show prep, had all the subjects, all the topics, and then right before I started the program, the North Carolina Supreme Court issues a ruling in the Leandro school funding case where they basically decided that uh, we don't need a Senate and we don't need a House. We don't need a legislative branch. They have decided they will dictate where money gets spent and how much money gets spent on education because it's in the Constitution that the state is supposed to provide the opportunity for a sound basic education and In their estimation, that has not occurred. And so the state legislature has refused, even though the state legislature was never sued specifically. They were never party to the case. But they decided that four Democrat lawyers, over the objections of the three Republican lawyers that are all wearing robes up there, they uh, they decided, you know what, we know better and we're tired of waiting. The deference to the legislative branch is over and we are now going to force this funding which of course creates a constitutional crisis because it is the legislature that has the power of the purse. They set the law for what money is spent and how much it's in the budget. It is a session law. And so you have four, four democratic judges that have just decided that that law doesn't matter. This other law matters more to them. They think, and it's this, you know, constitutional duty to enforce this provision, and in their interpretation, the kids haven't been provided an opportunity for a sound basic education. Now, I'm not sure exactly how you measure that. It seems pretty subjective to me. This is a 28-year running lawsuit, and this ruling today doesn't even end it. It just directs the lower court to uh, reallocate money, recalculate money, I should say, the trial court to recalculate the money. And then they're going to just demand, the court is going to demand that the state comptroller and the treasurer spend the money where they say to. It's truly remarkable. It it really is remarkable. Um, Let me go over here and get Chris on the program. Hello, Chris. Thanks for hanging on. Welcome. Hello, Pete. How are you? Hey, I'm good. What's going on? Oh, not a lot. Uh, I have three criteria I would like to see the U.S. legislature enforce onto the each state and each state legislature enforce into each county. And that is you have to meet three criteria or you get no money from us, period. Uh, that would be, number one, the money always follows the student, period. Number two, uh, there will be no tenure. Tenure is a thing of the past. And number three, there can be no union membership. Hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, you're saying at the state level as well as the national? Yes. I'd like to see the national apply this to the states, and each state apply this to the counties. I don't know if, you're, I don't know if you'll be able to, I mean, you have uh, the, the ability to unionize. I don't know if, you, I, I don't know if you're going to be able to get that passed. That's a, there's a lot of litigation in that second one, I think. Just use as an example what has happened because of Weingarten and yeah. the whole COVID thing. Yeah, yeah. Just use that as a prime example. No, I, yeah, I agree. I, I don't. I, I don't think public sector employees should be permitted to unionize. But I, I, I think. Don't either. Yeah, but I think we've. I, I mean that that position lost in court. So because obviously there are public sector unions. 
I, I, I find it to always, I'm sorry, you could always use the leftist trick, say, well, aren't you concerned about the children? You can play that game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, yes, that's an oldie but a goodie. Absolutely. All right, Chris, good to hear from you, man. Appreciate the call. Have a good one. All right, you too. Here's a tweet from Brent Woodcox. He works for the Republican Senate leadership. He's a, uh, he's a lawyer. And he said, uh, a prediction... Not a dime of taxpayer money is ultimately spent on this unprecedented and unconstitutional order before it is blocked and reversed by a newly seated North Carolina Supreme Court next year. So that's one way this could shake out, right? Is that Republicans win the majority on the court and whatever fund transfer was supposed to occur next year doesn't happen and then the court... Somehow or another, but I don't know how you would do that unless there's an appeal, right? I guess you would have to have some sort of a, but that that appeal doesn't go back to the state or yeah, it doesn't go back to the state Supreme Court. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that plays out. Let me see. Did anybody respond to him? Yeah, somebody said that's not an opinion. It's virtue signaling with inapt citations. Oh, they're talking about the, uh... okay, so here is from, let me see here, this is from, based on three, this is from the court opinion, based on three factual findings and legal conclusions, the November 2021 order orders the OSMB, which is the Office of State Management and Budget, the State Budget Director, the Office of the State Controller, and the State Controller, and the Office of the State Treasurer, and the State Treasurer to, quote, Take the necessary actions to transfer the total amount of funds necessary to effectuate years two and three of the remedial plan uh, from the unappropriated balance within the general fund to the state agents and state actors with fiscal responsibility for implementing the plan. The order then specifies the dollar amounts of three transfers to DHHS, DPI, and the UNC system, right? Because see, the remedial plan covers more than just K twelve education. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, did you know that? <clears throat> yeah. So just like all things, you know, Democrat consultant driven. When uh, y- y- when you let them, you know, blue sky this thing, uh, they come up with all sorts of programs and services. And by the way, this is I'm trying to remember uh, who we interviewed uh, several years ago about this. Or maybe not even maybe within the last year where. This model that they are utilizing with Leandro was actually already done in a different state. It may have been Oregon or something. You get the litigation going, and then you get the court to order this consultant to come in and basically fund, order the funding of your political agenda that you can't get passed through the proper legislative mechanisms. You don't control enough seats in the legislature. You don't control a governor's mansion or whatever. You can't get these things done. You can't get this spending. And so you just get some allies to sue. And then you enter into the settlement agreement with the court. And the court puts somebody in charge, you know, some special master to draw the maps, shall we say. Or um, or maybe it's a collusive agreement uh, for uh, 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 absentee ballot voting during the pandemic, uh, or maybe it's West Ed from California that says you need to spend a billion dollars a year on education, more than you are already spending. And that's going to make all of the kids learn. Oh, and it's not just education. The consultants say you want health and human service programs. 
You want stuff from the colleges, teacher trainings, all sorts of programs and services at all these different levels. It's, it's, it's a government employment program, as most government programs are, right? This is an employment program to get more people into the education uh, field, into the industry, and to get because the more people you get into that industry, drawing a government paycheck, the more solid you have uh, of a voter base you have, because they're never going to vote to fire themselves. They're never going to vote for a candidate that's going to withhold tax or uh, 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 pay raises. You know th- they won't vote against those people. You grow the government employee ranks and you grow your political base. And so this is just the way the Democrats are doing it now, through litigation, through the courts. And if you get enough judges on the bench, then you can get a court ruling your way. That's where we are in this state. But tell me again about how the court shouldn't be politicized by simply knowing if a judge is a Democrat or Republican. Please, please. Yes, I'm, I'm very receptive to this argument. That's sarcasm, people. I am fluent in it. Got an email here from John. If you would like to write, you can email Pete at thepetecalendarshow.com. That's calendar with a K. Pete, now that the out-of-control partisan hacks on the Supreme Court has ruled to violate the North Carolina Constitution once again, my hope is after the Republicans win the majority next Tuesday, the Speaker of the House will sue and the new Supreme Court will get involved and correct this constitutional crisis. Yeah, we shall see. I don't know what process... Because I've, I've not seen any statements from anybody yet uh, in, in the legislature. Um, I, I see some people asking, like, who exactly makes the decision when to release these opinions? Why do it now versus next week after the election? Right. It, or is somebody trying to influence the election? And I can make an argument that it could be the chief justice, Paul Newby, a Republican, letting people know, hey, they got this. They got this four three majority. Here's their opinion. If you want this to change. You know, unless you want judges, because here's the other thing. I got a, uh, hang on, there was, where was this? Where did I see? I have too many email uh, accounts. Here it is. To Dina. This is a perfect case of be careful what you wish for. Has it crossed anybody's mind that because judges now have the authority to overrule the legislature and voters and pronounce that more money must be provided, that the opposite holds true? If a judge can require that more money be spent, couldn't a conservative judge say too much is being taken from the public that hasn't been shown to be beneficial, and then the judge can require that fewer dollars be spent or allocated? Let me go over here to Scott. Welcome to the show. Hello, Scott. Happy Friday to you. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm well. To you as well. Good, good. Hey, on this education thing... um, I have a little bit different perspective. Um, we've had the, the great privilege and honor to serve on several mission trips to um, Jamaica, in this case, mm. where the government, as with North Carolina, has a mandate that they will provide the opportunity for education to all children in Jamaica. Free. It's the way it's written. Mm-hmm. And here are the caveats. All you have to do is provide your own food, transportation, books, supplies, and uniforms. And a teacher, maybe, too? I don't... <laughs> no, no, the teachers are supplied. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> um, you know, it's probably like a one-teacher-to-50-student ratio, but, hey, 
they provided the opportunity, right? They met the limits of the of the requirements, right? And Central Jamaica, as with many countries, is destitutely poor. Right. I mean, average incomes in in the fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a year. I mean, just ridiculously poor. Well, what, what's the likelihood that that family is going to be able to provide uniforms, books, food, transportation, et cetera, to get to these schools, which, by the way, are not neighborhood schools. Some of these schools can be 10, 12, 15 miles away, particularly when you get into the middle school and the high school ages and then say nothing about college. Right. So, but being as destitute as they may be by our standards, what every family down there that we've met to a person realizes, understands, and cherishes is the only way for them to work their way out of poverty is through education. These families make choices of, do we have all three meals today or do we skip one so we can send our kid to school? Do we send all three of our children to school or do we just send two of them for this semester and then alternate for the next semester? Some of these kids elementary age are taking two taxis and a bus to get to school and riding upwards of two hours alone, I mean, unsupervised with their parents, right? just to get to school. And they absolutely, thoroughly to their heart, appreciate the, the opportunity to get an education knowing that that's what gets them out. And you can bet these parents, most of whom can't read or do math or anything themselves, are still deeply involved and push heavily for their kids to get education for the sole reason that they want in their hearts, as most parents should, I feel, they want better for their children than they have. Mm -hmm. We have completely and utterly lost any vision of that in these United States. We have so many opportunities, so much provided for us, but unfortunately, that becomes the problem, right? Well, it's so big deal if I don't get involved in my kid's education and he doesn't get educated and he only reads at a third grade level when he graduates high school. It's okay. GovCo's here to take care of him anyway. What's the big deal? So we've, we've, we've come to take this as an entitlement, which we do in so many cases, when it should be considered a privilege, right? Just like voting or driving or any number of other things that, um, you know, unemployment. Well, we've just gone so far astray of of what our good intentions were mm-hmm. that it, it all comes back to as i as i saw per, firsthand many many times in a country that has so much less than us people that have so much less than us you know barely putting food on the table and yet their sole hope and intention is that their child gets educated and can be better than what they were and well, i think we were, we're in a state now where we've become so complacent that I don't even know if a lot of parents have that as their main focus, that I want my kid to do better than me. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how else to explain it either. Um, uh, Scott, I do appreciate the call. There's uh, there's a lot to unpack out of your comments there, and um, I, I don't know how you reverse course when a society doesn't care about education. It doesn't prioritize it. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking like you were saying, the parental involvement and the the demand that the child perform right for the for the parents to demand excellence of the children and for the parents to demand excellence of the teachers we have i know somebody personally who was looking forward to and this is an educated person college educated 
husband's college educated, and she flat out said to me that uh, she was looking forward to the uh, when the kids turn five so she could turn them over to the schools and she doesn't have to uh, uh, babysit them every day. And she can stop doing all of the stuff that she's doing for them. Like, that's, that is a, unfortunately, I think that might be a pretty common belief. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, the people in my, generally in my life don't behave like that. So I don't know. Um, I got a, a, a tweet here from Eric. He says, it's time for the legislature to say, bleep you, try enforcing your BS ruling. The Democrats' insane lust for power, all consequences be damned, has brought us this constitutional crisis. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure people realize what this is going to do. Um, Gosh, it's just, it's so frustrating. It's just so frustrating. Trying to get people that every other day, on every other topic, they're talking about the preservation of norms and civility and institutions, right? I mean, we just got through listening to, uh, you know, President Tapioca uh, giving his Biden shag fire speech, part two, talking about bringing everybody together and uniting everybody and all of this and the respect for institutional norms and existing institutions. And then you get this. You guys are constantly manipulating language in order to suit political agendas and reinterpreting stuff. This is the, this is what activist courts look like. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I'm going to move on. I got some other things. I did show prep for a whole other show. Um, so I'm going to do like 17 topics in the next two segments. No, I'm kidding. I'm- On uh, Tuesday, I was actually planning to talk about the uh, Supreme Court oral arguments on the affirmative action case, UNC, Chapel Hill, and Harvard. Oh yeah, I have a whole got a whole stack here. I had some audio clips, and then one thing after another after another. And no, I'm not going to be able to get to it today. Maybe I'll do that on uh, on Monday, next Monday, and I'll just have to say instead of yesterday, I'll say a week ago. Anyway, because I do want to get to a couple things um, that are a little bit more uh, time sensitive, shall we say? <clears throat> so, uh, for again, let me put that. That's on Monday stack too. Sorry. All right, let's do this. Yesterday, I talked about Pat Harrigan. He is the uh, Republican candidate for North Carolina's 14th congressional district, and. Uh, I have uh, asked his folks if he wanted to come on the program today, and I haven't heard back. Um, I haven't seen him do any kind of uh, media except for the Fox and Friends appearance this morning. But uh, yesterday during the program, I I broke the news that, well, Carolina Journal broke the news. I read to you the breaking news from Carolina Journal that somebody had shot his house and that this had occurred right after his opponent, State Senator Jeff Jackson, a.k.a. Baby Jesus, that Jeff Jackson had shot an ad right in front of Harrigan's house and that this had occurred a couple weeks ago, uh, October 18th. 
All right. So at the time, the initial report was that it was his house that got shot and his kids were in it and his parents were in it. There was a correction issued yesterday that uh, apparently due to a typo in um, in one of the messages or something that went to Carolina Journal or what they saw. I don't know, but they said a typo. It was not his property or not, not his house. It was his parents' house. Harrigan's campaign reached out and said that the candidate does not own the home. His parents own and live in the home, but family members, including Pat Harrigan's kids, were present at the time of the shooting. The candidate owns a property near the parents' property where the shooting occurred. So yesterday afternoon, after I got off air and I went home and I see this correction, um, I do, you know, I, I do what I do. I, I went over to the county GIS site, start doing some searches on public records. I found the house. I found the parents' house. They're different houses. They kind of look the same because you can also see on Google Earth. You could see the houses and all of that. Um, Jeff Jackson's folks, and I've not seen anything from State Senator Jeff Jackson of Mecklenburg County, Democrat. Um, I've not seen him actually say anything about this. His um, his campaign put out a statement, or at least gave one to the Charlotte Observer. Here it is. In response to the shooting, the Jackson campaign pulled a TV ad that featured one of Harrigan's homes. See, they're saying one of Harrigan's homes. Now, again, according to the property record search I did, there were only there were only two homes owned by these Harrigans in Hickory, and one is owned by the the candidate and his wife, and the other is owned by, I guess, his parents. And they are pretty close by. They're near each other. And it's in a suburb. So the only, and judging by where the bullet hit the house, it doesn't really seem like that would be shot. I mean, basically it's somebody like on the road or across the street. That's what it looks like to me. It's not like there's not like somebody was out there deer hunting or something, but I don't know. Now, as I always say in these types of situations, and I said this yesterday, you know, I always prefer to wait for more information to be revealed. Let's get some police investigations. Let's get some public comments from authorities that have found some stuff out. They're going to go pull some video camera footage. We'll be able to see at the time this happened, right? But had the Paul Pelosi attack not just occurred, and had I not just been treated to yet another round of gaslighting, I might have pursued that approach. But I decided to play the Democrats game Yesterday, and that meant Jeff Jackson basically pulled the trigger. Right, that's the narrative that I have to now push out. He is responsible, and as proof of his responsibility, that his political ad, his rhetoric inspired the shooting, contrary to the fact that I have zero evidence to support this. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. See, when when an act of violence occurs against somebody in politics and that someone is a Democrat, the immediate narrative is that their political opponents are responsible because they said they disagree with you. So I'm applying this standard. So Jeff Jackson's personally responsible for uh, this attack on the family. And uh, as proof of this, they took down their ad. 
Why else would you take down the ad? Right? See, now I'm, this is, this is the, uh, the Michael Moore way of arguing, which is, what do you think it means? Right? I'm not going to actually prove anything. I'm just going to ask the question. I'm just asking questions. Right? I'm just going to ask the question, and I'm going to put my hands up, shrug the shoulders, palms up. And what do you think it means? Right? This is, this is how we advance the political discourse, right, guys? This is, I learned it by watching you. Okay, Dad, I learned it from watching you. Last week, you guys raced, right, rushed right in to, to assign the blame for the Pelosi attack on every single Republican. Oh, and also this means Jeff Jackson took his one ad down that showed the house of Pat Harrigan, which I think proves that they know that there's a connection um, without any evidence, obviously. But I just know it to be true because it's my truth. And who are you to say that my truth isn't the truth? Um, And if you deny me, you're causing me trauma, and that is hate speech. But also, I think every single Democrat now needs to take down every political campaign ad. I believe this um, this was an argument asserted by a CBS News host, right? That you have to take down all of your campaign ads. You have to stop campaigning before the election because the rhetoric, you know, is inspiring people to do this stuff. Here's the statement. It's, uh, I think, two sentences from Tommy Cromie, who is the campaign spokesman for Jeff Jackson, a.k.a. Baby Jesus. Quote, we fully support law enforcement as... Really? You got to throw in the, I'm not a defund police person. That's, That's a political framing right there, right? That's a frame job. We fully support law enforcement as they investigate this incident and believe any wrongdoing should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. We at Team Jackson pulled our ad in an abundance of caution and concern. But to be clear, the home involved in the incident has never been featured in any of our advertising. Oh, I see. So you you showed Pat Harrigan's house and they shot his parents' house, which is like right up the road. And so your hands are clean. Well, if your hands are clean, then why'd you take the ad down? Why would they shoot his parents' house if it's not connected? Why would you take the ad down if the shooting at his parents' house isn't connected? Kind of doesn't make much sense there. Here's the other thing. Um, when the Harrigans are on the campaign trail, and the reason why, by the way, that Jeff Jackson did this advertisement or yeah, did the political ad in front of the Harrigan's house is because he was showing them that uh, they don't, you know, they don't live here. They don't live here. This is their house and it's in Hickory. They don't live in the congressional district that they're running in, which, by the way, you don't have to. You can run for a district and not live there. Now, the Harrigan's did, in fact, get an apartment in Charlotte and they uh, they say they intend to uh to move, they're, they're intending to move. They're going to sell the house in Hickory, and they're going to move to the district if he wins. And people do this. And you can hold that against him or not. Totally your call. Do you need to stand in front of his house in Hickory to make that ad? No, you don't. You absolutely do not. But I think the day the ad went out is the day that the shot was fired. Here's a question. What time of day was it? Because the kids were in the house sleeping. They were like 20 feet away from where the bullet went through the wall. And these are very, very young kids. So um, what were the Harrigans not there? Were they off campaigning? Did somebody, if it is in fact intentional, it was an intentional targeting of the house. I'm sorry. I'm supposed to say with 
with certainty that it was. Sorry. I'm still adopting this new position of you know trying to advance the narrative immediately. Sorry. So did somebody stake them out? Did somebody stake out and see that, that the, the kids were dropped at the grandparents' house and thought that that was the Harrigan house? See, I have a lot of questions. I'm just asking questions. Oh, apparently I own the station now. Hang on a second. I didn't even realize this. Hang on. on. Oh, did he block me? Oh, yeah. Okay, here we go. I was called a segregationist because I uh, promoted vouchers (laughs) by this guy on Twitter. And so he said, okay, segregationist. So I just responded, okay, racist. Oh, his handle is Ethiopian father. And so he says, wait, I'm racist because I don't want segregated public schools. Dude, you have a radio station and are dumb as poop. And uh, so Nick says, hey, Pete, congrats on now owning WBT. That is a huge accomplishment. That's right. I have a radio station. (laughs) Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. And thank you, Ethiopian father. No, I was simply making the point that you don't want minority kids to have access to the educational opportunities that vouchers provide. So therefore, you're racist. Oh, I know it's kind of a specious, ar- a specious argument, but I mean, when in Rome, right? I mean, you're making an argument. You're calling me a segregationist based on no actual information. So I figure that's the way we're debating this stuff. So I'm going to call you racist. How about that? Oh, did that not turn out the way you thought it was going to turn out? Okay. North Carolina is known for a lot of things. Barbecue being one of them. It's another election season, another barbecue-related story. I mean, this one doesn't have anything to do with the election, but it's got something to do with barbecue. Have you heard of the barbecue Karen? A woman dining at Clyde Cooper's Barbecue in Raleigh. This place has been around since like 1938 or something. This woman called the cops because she claimed that the pork she ordered, the barbecue pork, pulled pork that she got, was too pink. And it was not fully cooked. The owner said, no, honey. Pink is what it looks like when you smoke it. Two six-packs of shiner. 99-cent butane lighter. Lucky strikes and a fifth of Patron. So this woman gets pulled pork barbecue that's pink, and she says, it's pink, it's undercooked. And they're like, no, it's not. That's the color it looks like when it's smoked. So she called the cops on the restaurant. Three blondes in a ragtop Mustang followed us down to the lake and 
didn't have to think about that too long. Skinny dipping in the bright moonlight. Situation couldn't be more right. I can feel a good one coming on. Even other people in the restaurant were like, lady, the pork is supposed to be that color. They even offered her white meat chicken instead. Like, do you want some chicken instead? No. The most the most egregious part, after she calls the cops and leaves, she leaves a one-star review on Google. We live in very, very stupid times. I'm betting she was from up north, though. All right, I'll see you Monday. Don't break anything while I'm gone. Good one.